I'd like to um, welcome everyone to Class Wars, Culture Wars, Owen Jones and the Chavs, which part, forms part of the um, LSE Literary Festival Week. Um, given the increasing austerity, uh, the continuation of bankers' bonuses, rising inequality, this seems a very appropriate moment to be thinking about class wars in Britain. Uh, I'm Diane Perrins from the LSE Gender Institute and I'll be chairing uh, tonight's event. Um, my role is to ensure that our speakers, our eminent speakers here, Owen Jones, uh, Sue Christofferu and Mary Evans, uh, will speak for around 20 minutes or so each and then we'll open the floor to discussion. Um, I'll introduce each speaker as they take their turn. So first of all, we have Owen Jones. Um, Owen uh, graduated in history from Oxford University in 2005, uh, completed a master's in 2007 on the rise of the neocons in the US uh, before working as a trade union lobbyist in parliament. Um, in 2011, uh, the Daily Telegraph named Owen as one of the top 100 most influential people on the left. Um, and he also won, I'm, I'm, I'm embarrassing you here, you also won um, Left Foot Forward's poll for the most influential left-wing thinker of the year. There wasn't much competition for that. <laughs> um, these, these awards follow, quite obviously, from the 2011 publication by Verso of his first book, Chavs, The Demonization of the Working Class. Uh, Chavs was long-listed for the Guardian First Book Award, uh, chosen by the New York Times as one of their top 10 non-fiction books of 2011. Um, I believe there are copies of the book on sale outside after the event, so it would be a good idea to hear more about the book first. So please warm, uh, join me in giving a very warm welcome to Owen Jones. Uh, thanks for that. It's a real pleasure to be here. Looking around, I look, I think, younger than pretty much anyone else in the room. In fact, uh, <laughs> I opened the door the other day and they asked me if my parents were in. Uh, whenever I go on TV, they always go, he's having James and why is he doing his paper around? But I've, I've taken the evening off that. Anyway, um, in terms of the book, um, the whole point of the book, above all, in however limited or modest a way, was to try and get a debate going about class again. And that was a debate which I felt had been effectively shut down for a very long time, both by the political and the media establishment. But bizarrely, I found myself pushing an open door. And I think if the book had come out even four years ago, I don't think it would have made half the impact. And the reason is, is because class is back. Um, and I think the whole range of reasons for that. Firstly, because we're very much in the middle of an intractable economic crisis which I think focuses attention on unjust distributions of wealth and power in a society. So whilst in the last year, the average Britain's going through the biggest squeeze in living standards since the 1920s, and in fact the Resolution Foundation recently projected that in 2016, the average Britain will be worse off than at the turn of the millennium. Uh, but it remains boom time for the people at the top. So last year, the average pay of the top 100 uh, companies in the boardroom went up by nearly a half, and it went up by even more than that y the year before. Every year, the Sunday Times do a rich list of the top 1,000 richest people in Britain, and their wealth went up by nearly a fifth last year, and the year before that by 30%, which was the biggest jump ever recorded by the rich list. So I think in that context, when you have 
a crisis for the broad majority of people, but it remains boom time for the people at the top, it's almost impossible not to look, to deny, if you like, the existence of class division in society. I also think, probably for the worst possible reasons, a Conservative government helps. Um, nothing like a Tory government to promote a left-wing book. Um, but um, because you have a, obviously, as we know, uh, a government which is made up of people from a very narrow social background, so 22 out of every 20, 22, so 29 cabinet ministers and millionaires, and introducing policies which are obviously affecting people from a very different background from their own. And I think, again, that contrast is why class has made a bit of a comeback. But just to be precise about what the, the whole point of the project was, it was to challenge as well this false dichotomy which I felt existed, which was the idea that everybody is now middle class, that the working class has all but disappeared. It's either aspirational and joined the middle class, leaving behind a problematic and feckless rump, which the Chavs term more than any, I suppose, best summarises. Now, I'll give you one example. Simon Heffer, a journalist I'm sure many will be familiar with, it works, wrote for the Daily Mail on the Daily Telegraph, and he put, it, he put it like this, he said, um, the respectable working class no longer exists. What sociologists used to call the working class no longer works at all, but is dependent on the welfare state. Now, he'd never use a term like Chav. He said his kids who go to Eton use it all the time, and he hates it. But that, if you like, sums up that caricature, that false dichotomy. Now, the other, um, on the right, more generally, there was this idea again in the 90s during the long boom, all middle class apart from the so-called underclass. And I suppose the underclass was best summed up, that attitude to the so-called underclass, by a political scientist in the United States called Charles Murray, who's best known for his book The Bell Curve, which argued that black people had a lower IQ than white people. But what he argued was this so-called underclass was made up of increasing numbers of people having children out of wedlock in lower socioeconomic groups. And in fact, he called for penalties against single mothers. He said it might be horribly sexist, but it also happens to be true. And it's this idea that people's behaviour determined if they ended up in this so-called underclass. For New Labour, it was a bit more nuanced than that. There was this idea, again, as Tony Blair himself said, we're all middle class now, apart from the so-called socially excluded. Now, I interviewed Matthew Taylor, who was... Blair's former head of strategy and a very bright and engaging bloke and he, he put it like this, he said the socially excluded were different from class because class was assigned to you but so you had a role in your own exclusion if you were socially excluded. Your own behaviour determined partly where you ended up in the pecking order and he said it wasn't just about blaming the poor for being poor but he said it was partly that as well. So if you like that was that false dichotomy again in the political establishment but there was another study which came out frustratingly after the book came out. It's by an organisation called Britain Thinks. I don't know if people saw this study. Now, it was different from a lot of other polls that had been done, because even though we were all told everyone's middle class, people were pretty stubborn about it in polls, and between 50 and 55% self-identified as um, working class, even uh, throughout the noughties um, and the 90s before that. But in this study, 71% said they were middle class, and 20, only 24% said they were working class. Now, what was interesting and disturbing about the findings was when those um, who called themselves uh, middle class were asked, the term, the working class tag itself, had become, according to Deborah Mattinson, who ran the study, a 
a class-based slur like the term chav. And when people were asked to play word association, to take pictures from magazines to sum up what they meant by the working class, people came back with very negative images uh, to associate. So, for example, teenage pregnancy was one. Antisocial behaviour was another. Spending money in a tacky way came out. Bizarrely, plastic surgery gone wrong, which I didn't understand. But these sort of negative chav kind of caricatures, if you like. Now, amongst the people who called themselves working class, that small group, um, what was most common which came up when people asked what does it mean to you wasn't a kind of sense of pride in the same way it was the most common response was being working class just means being poor now people came up with uh, images to sum up what they meant by being middle class and the most common image well the image that was used in the end by the focus group to sum up was the cafetiere that's what people came back <laughs> to sum up being, who has a cafetiere anyway sorry um, but it it was this idea that what came back was being middle class was classy. Um, and for me, it wasn't surprising because it was this, it showed what had happened, the consequences of the airbrushing out of existence of la largely positive images of working class people and working classness. This idea that aspiration is about pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and becoming middle class. And I thought that this fleshed that out, if you like, because, for example, one focus group where people called themselves middle class, another called themselves working class, their jobs, their backgrounds were exactly the same. The difference was the middle class grouping were trying to distance themselves from an identity they no longer felt they could be proud of. Now what I looked at to flesh out this idea, idea was a case study, two case studies actually, a contrast in how uh, the disappearance of two young girls was presented. Now everyone will know about the disappearance of Madeleine McCann, I'm sure. It was a tragic disappearance in May 2007 in the Algarve. And there was a huge amount of coverage about it. Um, £2.5 million was raised within two weeks of a disappearance. And there was a bit of soul-searching by journalists. Why are we so interested in the disappearance of this one young girl when there's so many other tragedies going on in the world? One journalist, um, Indian Knight, put it like this. She said it was a girl much like our own. You could go to this, uh, this holiday resort catered for the middle classes, she said. You could go there and look around and feel assured that these people were just like you. It wasn't full of the sorts of people who slapped their kids in supermarkets, she said. Now, there was another disappearance which took place a few months later, and some of you may not have heard of this, although many of you will for all the wrong reasons. It was the disappearance of Sharon Matthews, um, which took place uh, in Dewsbury, a community in West Yorkshire which was really badly hit by the destruction of the textile industry from the late 70s onwards. Now, to begin with, it seemed as though this was a similar disappearance, a tragic disappearance of a young girl, but there was only a third of the coverage and only £25,000 was raised. Again, there was a bit of soul-searching by journalists. Why aren't we interested again in this disappearance of a young girl? One of them put it like this. He said, it's grim up north. It's full of not very appealing council estates and abandoned wasteland and full of the sorts of people capable of fulfilling the worst stereotypes of the white underclass. Another journalist said, the white working class of Jewsbury Moor um, are like a foreign country and compared it to reporting from Afghanistan. Now, when it was actually found what had happened, um, in fact, it wasn't like Madeleine McCann at all. Cameron Matthews, the mother, had kidnapped her own daughter, tied her to a divan bed and drugged her uh, for several weeks in order to extort money from the tabloid press. Rather than being seen as, I hope we'd all agree, an outrageous act by one individual, it was seen as the tip of the iceberg, that this 
shone a light into another Britain. So, um, uh, for example, uh, one journalist said um, the working class in many communities has degenerated into an underclass. It is a decline that this unfortunate woman seems to embody. The community, who had been a great honour of speaking to many people involved in the campaign to find this missing girl, they'd been lighty like everyone else. People generally in work, but often very poorly paid work. They didn't have much time, and what time they did, they pull it as best they can to find this young girl. They even created leaflets in different languages. Now, they were attacked in the press as a shameless-style community, comparing them uh, to the TV series Shameless, of course. Uh, and because one uh, member of the community was reported to have gone to the supermarket in their dressing gown, uh, they were compared to war-torn Beirut in the 1980s. I don't know if people are familiar with the Civil War in the 1980s in Beirut, but I don't think people wandering around in their dressing gowns was the, uh, the most of their concerns at the time. But again, it was this idea of this, firstly, the smearing of this community, but this idea that this was actually a wider issue. One, another journalist, Carol Malone, said, I used to live near a council estate. It was full of people like Karen Matthews, as though council estates are full of people kidnapping their kids to extort money from the tabloid press. Um, Ian Duncan Smith, who's now the custodian of our welfare state, um, he, he said it was like a door had opened into another Britain. And his uh, think tank, the Centre for Social Justice, don't think about that, um, no, but he, they, they linked it to proposals to give uh, tenants in social housing a stake in their own property as a reward for good behaviour, an expression normally associated with pets, children and prisoners. Um, but it was again this direct link between the case of Karen Matthews an outrageous, despicable act by one woman and the 10 million people who live in social housing in this country obviously as disgusted as anybody else. Now, um, just, and this, so absurd to even say this out loud, it makes the point, I think, um, to come up with another example of an outrageous, despicable action by one individual. I grew up in Stockport, just near Hyde, uh, where Harold Shipman, the mass-murdering GP, lived. In fact, one of my friend's grandmas was killed by Harold Shipman. Now, when he was caught, it was rightly seen as an outrageous act by one individual. No one went, the professional middle classes, look at what they're capable of. <laughs> Slaughtering hundreds of people. Um, and that's the point. Uh, and that, but this is the point I wanted to address, this idea of this is the tip of the iceberg. We're all middle class now, apart from this feckless, problematic rump, and Shannon, Karen Matthews is as good as anyone to sum that up. Now, just briefly, in terms of popular culture, because this is often where I think people most associate this idea of um, this false caricature, if you like. I'd argue, actually, in, in post-war Britain, without getting rose-tinted about it, easy to do as a 27-year-old, uh, but you did have an effort in the post-war period. You had popular culture, which tried in some way to show working-class communities not sometimes in a one-dimensional way, patronising way, but in a positive or an attempt to do a realistic portrayal. Now, I interviewed directors like Ken Loach and Stephen Frears, and for them, the reason for that was because they said it was almost impossible to ignore working-class Britain. You had a strong trade union movement. You had the legacy of the first majority Labour government. You got a whole wave of shows like Coronation Street, which is very different from how it is today, not these larger-than-life caricatures and sensationalist plots that looked at a community in Manchester in a relatively authentic way. And it got 20 million viewers within a few weeks. You had a whole range of shows. You had northern realism in films. You had uh, shows like The Likely Lads, The Good Life, where middle-class people were often on the receiving end of jokes. You had uh, The Rag Trade, a sitcom about female trade unionists. I mean, the idea of having that today is 
all but unthinkable. Only fools and horses. And in that, it's interesting because Del Boy's a bit of a clown, but he didn't, it wasn't a sneering representation. You laughed with him, not at him. And then um, even things like Alvida saying pet. I'd argue now we've got this, diff- this kind of positive portrayal of middle class people and then these sneering representations of an extreme caricature. And I think Vicky Pollard best sums that up for many people. Now, you often come across as a sort of po-faced, guardian-reading, muesli-eating, sandal-wearing liberal. He's just ruining a bit of fun when you talk about this. But what people are laughing at is a privately educated male comedian dressing up as a feckless single mum living on a council estate who's so thick she swaps one of her kids for a Westlife CD. But what was disturbing, and this is the point, because Matt Lucas hates me, he's got in touch, he wants me to stop talking about Vicky Pollard. But the point about this was actually how the media construed it. So, for example, there was a a survey done by YouGov a few years ago, and it showed over 70% of people who work in British TV thought she was an accurate representation of the white working class. Now, actually, I'm just going to nick this, that's right. Um, I had to... um, had to uh, had a, uh, a little run-in with a journalist called James Delingpole. I don't know if people are aware of him. Um, sometimes people snicker just when I mention his name. But I had to debate him because he argued, he argued the last discriminated against group in Britain were privately educated white men. Despite the fact they run the country, I thought he had a really fair point. But he said, the Vicky Pollards of our world have got it coming to them. If they weren't quite so repellent, we wouldn't need to make jokes about them, would we? The reason uh, Vicky Pollard caught the public imagination is that she embodies with such fearful accuracy several of the great scourges of contemporary Britain. Aggressive all-female gangs of embittered, hormonal, drunken teenagers. Gym-slit mums who choose to get pregnant as a career option. Pasty-faced, lard-gutted slappers who'll drop their knickers in the blink of an eye. It goes on. <laughs> that was in the Times, would you believe? Uh, but this is this idea. It's the way of getting a comedy caricature and saying, actually, this is, tr- this is real life. This is what people are like. Other journalists are even more, even, you know, I mean, there's other, uh, you know, which we could talk about, things like Wayne Etta Slob, and in fact, one Daily Mail article talked about incapacity benefits and more women signing on. They had a picture then of Wayne Etta Slob and said, more women like this are signing on to IB, which again just shows the way these caricatures are used. But there was another, just to give an example of how jur- some journalists are even avert about it, a journalist called Janet Daly at the Daily Telegraph. She, uh, she had this run-in um, with what she described as a working-class sociopath. Uh, basically, their cars clipped each other and they yelled at each other, then he drove off. And um, she said um, she used this to go into a bit of a tirade and argued uh, the working class were the diminishing detritus of the Industrial Revolution. Um, they said, she said they lacked civic culture of their own um, and would long plague Britain even as it became a successful multicultural society. She even, another, uh, another column she wrote, she said, um, she wrote that she talked about going abroad and people like her had to escape the yobs to go to those places of abroad that they ignored. But she said what was disturbing about it was that they weren't poor. She said these were people from res- what would have been known as respectable working class jobs. And it was this idea that because of the package holiday, which suddenly gave access to people to go on holiday who couldn't before, the wrong people were going on holiday and ruining them for nice, polite, middle-class journalists like her who use their columns to attack large groups of people. Now, and, and actually, a, a company tried to tap into this sentiment, a company called Activities Abroad. Now, they went through their database, and they looked through the sorts of people who went on their very expensive holidays and found lots of people called Charles and George and Henrietta, Uh, But they said there weren't anyone called Gaz or Charlene, so they said they could legitimately argue they could offer chav-free holidays. Um, Now, they got a bit of stick for that, to be fair, but they said, 
Um, you know, they said it's about time the middle class has stood up for themselves, regardless of whether or not it's class warfare. And I think, for me, that's some... So all of this summed up the argument of what I was trying to make, which is this idea of everyone being middle class apart from this problematic rump. Now, just briefly, because I'm probably running out of time, I think. Two minutes. Two minutes. Oh, God. I'll, I'll wrap this up then, and we can talk about the rest afterwards. But for me, unsurprisingly, I suppose, I think it has a bit to do with Thatcherism, which doesn't come off that well in the book, I'm going to be honest, uh, which was the legacy, which we'll talk about, I think, more in the discussion where this has come from. But I'd argue that there was a concerted attack on many of the traditional pillars in working-class Britain from the late 70s onwards. Unions, over half of workers were unionised in 1979, uh, and because of the destruction of um, uh, partly of industries, in fact, um, um, Sir Alan Budd, who ran the Office for Budget Responsibility on this government, who was a Thatcher advisor, said he feared the policies that he was asked to implement weren't about bringing down inflation, but about reducing the strength, he said, of the working classes. Uh, but also uh, the, very, the most restrictive anti-union laws in Western Europe, a huge numbers of set-piece battles, particularly the miners' strike, which sapped the confidence of trade unionists, as well as all that, the destruction of industries, not to glorify them. Many of them were dirty, back-breaking jobs which excluded women but sustained entire communities which disappeared at a very quick rate and were never often replaced. What we saw with the legacy right to buy and the failure to replace the stock that was sold off and increasingly council housing was treated as a social dumping ground. But above all in the 80s, there was all of that together, this sense that being working class was something to escape from, that people should aspire to be middle class. Just finally as well, to this idea, which I think has become endemic, that we don't have social problems in this country, we have individual failings. So, for example, in 1979, Thatcher said there's no such thing as primary poverty in this country. She said, OK, there are people who don't know how to budget, don't know how to spend their earnings properly, but we are left, then she said, with a basic behavioural personality <coughs> defect. That summed up the core of Thatcherism in terms of its attitude to what would traditionally be seen as social problems. Of course, famously, Norman Tebbit, during mass unemployment, said, back in the Depression, my dad got on his bike, and the get-on-your-bike became almost a cliché under Thatcherism. This idea that poverty and unemployment, for example, aren't social problems, but actually individual failings, and people need to bring themselves up by their bootstraps and join the middle classes, and if they fail to do so, that's their own fault. Now, that, I think, is what's trickled into popular culture. It's been embraced by the whole political and media establishment, but it's filtered into general attitudes too. And that is why I think we've got this false dichotomy, the airbrushing out of existence of the real working class, which we can talk about, in favour of a false dichotomy of a, set of, a, of a broadly contented middle class and a problematic rump whose failings, if you like, are, are individual and not social. Thank you. Uh, thank, thank you very much, Owen. Uh, our next speaker is uh, Sue uh, Christofoulou. Uh, she is policy analyst and campaigner. She has worked um, for a number of national organisations, including MIND and Macmillan Cancer Support. Um, Sue is currently senior policy officer with DrugScope, uh, which is an independent centre of expertise on drugs and an organisation devoted to informing policy development uh, reducing drug-related harms to individuals, families and communities, <coughs> and with promoting health, 
well-being, recovery, inclusion and integration. Um, in this talk, she'll be focusing on how the rising scale of inequality makes the task of creating inclusive societies far more difficult. Uh, thank you, Sue. Thank you. I think Sue has a, a presentation. Mm -hmm. so. Evening all. Um, I'm told that if I just press this button, then my slides will come up, so let's hope that that will happen. Um, as Diane says, that um, I'm do work for Drugscope and uh, work there doing policy analysis and influencing of government. But I'm also associated with an organisation called the Equality Trust. Now the Equality Trust is a very small charity that's based in London and it was established in 2009 following the publication of The Spirit Level, which some of you may have heard of, which is a book by a couple of social epidemiologists called Kate Pickett and Richard Wilkinson. And in that book, um, Wilkinson and Pickett explore possible reasons for the manifestation of health and social outcomes, poor health and social outcomes in countries and better social outcomes in other countries. Um, and so the Equality Trust was set up to, as I say, promote the ideas in that book. So that's my primary association for today, if you like. And what, unsurprisingly enough, perhaps, what I'm going to say follows on quite neatly from what Owens just said, is as though we planned it. It was amazing. <laughs> I even have a shameless character on my first slide. <laughs> um, so as Owen was saying, uh, there is this Thatcherite idea that individuals are innately defective, and this is why they're in a position of disadvantage, be that uh, financial disadvantage, be that because they have a drug dependency issue, be that because they have... Had they're living in poor housing, for example. That's an idea of how chavs are made. That is, the chavs make themselves, they are born chavs, as it were. Or alternatively, one can consider systemic or structural factors, um, hence the slide. Is it Frank himself, or is it the world he lives in? Um, so, Wilkinson and Pickett are not the only social, social, social epidemiologists who've looked at the area of income inequality and how that might impact on health and social outcomes. Um, some of you may have heard of uh, Professor Sir Michael Marmot, and he recently produced a publication for um, government a couple of years ago, Fair Society, Healthy Lives. And in that publication, he says that income inequality is not just about material deprivation, there is evidence that degree of inequality in society is having a harmful effect on health, not only of the poor, but of society as a whole. Countries and areas within countries marked by greater inequality have not only worse health, but higher rate of crime and other adverse social outcomes. And this is a, a graph from Wilkinson and Pickett's book. And what they did in their book is that they looked at about 30 years worth of a statistical analysis of health and social outcomes such as homicides, imprisonment, teenage births, and compared that to income inequality. And they compared it to a number of, uh, they compared a number of countries, 23 countries in the, uh, the developed world, which are, I hope you can see in the slide. Um, and they've came up with this compound indicator of um, poor, of, of health and social problems. And they, set the, they created this graph whereby the x-axis you have the income inequality of the countries in question and on the y-axis you've got the, the level of health and social out, uh, problems. 
in, this, in the form of this compound indicator. And you'll see that in the top, from your point of view, from the top right-hand corner, the USA are almost off the scale. The income inequality is the greatest in that country, as are um, the problems listed there. And we don't do so much better. You'll see that next along, along the uh, trend line is Portugal, and then there we are, number three. Um, there's quite a massive disparity in income levels in the UK, and as Owen alluded to, they're only going to increase as current government policies are implemented. Uh, so, and our levels of health and social problems are quite high correspondingly. And Owen was saying that there are some typical aspects of your CHAV, uh, and he mentioned a couple of them. Um, and I've got some slides that look specifically at some of those CHAV aspects. So, drug use, obesity, imprisonment, and the, the classic that Owen mentioned a couple of times is teenage pregnancy, no doubt in order to get hold of a council flat. So let's look at those, those problems specifically. Drug use is more common in more unequal societies. So one might conclude you want to reduce drug use. You could look at reducing the income um, disparity between the highest earners and the lowest earners. And again, it's the same format as the previous slide. So you have income inequality across the bottom, running from low to high, from low to high in that direction, and uh, problematic use low at the bottom of the y-axis, going up to high. Um, so another classic chav behaviour, being obese, or a lardass, as one might say colloquially, and again, where, there is, where one looks at income inequality in, in countries, you will see that the rates of obesity are greater in those countries with greater income inequality. The trend line isn't uh, so neat as in previous slides, but nevertheless is there. Uh, what's next? What's the other cliché? Next cliché is rates of imprisonment. And rates of imprisonment are higher in more unequal countries. I think you're getting a point I'm trying to make here. You'll see that the USA is over in its usual corner, and the, 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 more, the countries with less income uh, disparity, such as uh, Finland, Norway, Sweden, are down there in the cosy, positive corner uh, nearest to me. And they, they appear there in all slides, similarly as the USA and um, us and Portugal generally are in the top right-hand corner. And the classic cliché of chav behaviour, teenage pregnancy, and this trend line is quite neat. And again, USA, almost off the scale. Um, same point again, where there's greater income inequality in a country, the rates of teenage pregnancy are greater, and there is a strong correlation between those two indicators. So, one could conclude that in fact, um, rather than uh, Frank being personally responsible for any difficulty that he may encounter, for, for him being personally responsible for living in poor quality housing, for him being without education, for him being in low paid work, the work of um, Michael Marmot and Wilkinson and Pickett suggests strongly, given those correlations, that there are some systemic causes of poor health and social outcomes and that those systemic causes come in the form of class difference or income inequality. So that's one way that chavs are made through government policy in relation to the redistribution of wealth or otherwise. But there is also another way, again, Owen's alluded to this. Um, the media have their own view of 
who chavs are, what they are. Uh, and this is um, this is what Cameron said in the Telegraph uh, just after the the unrest last summer. And he says about this individual here, who's running away from a pound land with some crisps. Um, you, if you are old enough to commit these crimes, these heinous crisp-stealing crimes, you are old enough to face the punishment, says Cameron. You will feel the full force of the law. Unless you happen to be posh. I think we all do stupid things when we're young, says Cameron. Uh, and this is Cameron and Boris Johnson's also there in the 80s when he was at um, Oxford. Um, so... Just, People do foolish things when they're young, including smashing up restaurants on the, by these Bullingdon Club characters. Uh, but the Bullingdon Club antics, nice benevolent word there, antics were nothing like the riots, says Cameron. So if you're poor and you're stealing some crisps, you should be subject to the full force of the law. If you're rich and you smash up restaurants, you're just doing something stupid during your youth. Uh, again, um, Frank from Shameless is back, as is one of the biggest selling newspapers in, in the UK, disturbingly enough. And on the 12th of August last year, just after the riots, the Sun asked its readers to help us stop 150 billion benefit scroungers. The Sun is declaring war on feckless benefit claimants to slash the five billion wasted in Britain's shambolic handouts culture. These scroungers are robbing hard-working sun readers. <laughs> the rest of us are okay. It's just the sun readers are in trouble. They claim to be sick. And this, this, this campaign to uh, clamp down on fraud is, has the support of David Cameron. So we, we see from this text, which is taken directly from the sun, that uh, people who claim benefits should be subject to a war, uh, that they are thieves, and that they are liars. But you'll notice this... I beg your pardon? I the <laughs> I couldn't possibly comment. <laughs> uh, but it's not only the Sun. Uh, there are a number of other papers that take similar views of people who claim benefits. So the Daily Express is a front runner in the denigration of people who are so poor that they claim welfare benefits, um, as is their Sunday <laughs> sister paper. The Daily Mail, here we have them claiming that 75 people of 75% uh, rather of people who claimed incapacity benefits were in fact lying and were indeed fit for work. What they omit to mention is that those people have been now found fit to work because the definition of fit was changed quite significantly. Um, Daily Express again, blitz, another uh, militaristic metaphor, blitz on families, raking in benefits, the whole £65 that a week that is JSA uh, and Sunday Express. Uh, the scroungers are living in mansions, apparently. Um, but in fact, the DWP published last year in July their estimated total overpayments, which is money that's gone to people inappropriately for various reasons, those reasons being fraud and er error. And then they disaggregate and they look at fraud, they look at customer error, which actually means claimant error, um, and then official error on the part of Job Centre Plus or DWP. And in fact, the, the amount that uh, is lost to fraud on the part of claimants is £1.2 billion, which is a lot of cash, undoubtedly. But what it is also is 0.8% of the total expenditure on benefits. But if we consider the headlines that we've just looked at in the Sun, the Express, the, 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 the Mail, one wouldn't imagine that it's less than 1%. 
And you'll see further along in the official error column that 0.5% um, of overpayments was as a consequence of official error, which is obviously smaller than 0.8, but it's not that much smaller. And government are well aware that the representation of groups or people in media has an impact, has an impact on how readers, listeners, viewers think about the groups who are being featured in these um, media broadcasts or print media uh, articles. So much so that Osborne was driven to protect the bankers. Um, and last month, he, uh, Cameron rather, had a meeting with his business advisory council and he was warned about the risks, the danger no less, of the ongoing banker bashing and the relentless attack on anyone who makes any profit out of successful business. Although one might disagree that the corner shop who's making money out of a successful business is in the same bracket as, um, for example, A4E, who's recently made an awful lot of cash at the expense, arguably, of people claiming benefit. So there's a relentless attack on anyone who makes any money out of a successful business and out of successfully employing people. This is dangerous for Britain, and it will mean people are put off from coming here and setting up business. He's, there's, there's fear in the air. And he goes on. Um, people are trying, those who are trying to create an anti-business culture in Britain must be stopped. We have to stop them. At stake are not pay packages for a few, but jobs and prosperity for the many. And the language is, is, is instructive. The language used here is instructive. Those that are trying to create an anti-business culture, but it's a sinister, unnamed group who have this power to bring about this culture change. And they have to be stopped, otherwise the, the country is going to be uh, in danger. And at stake, there's high risk. At, st at stake is not just money for rich people, but for all of us, all of our livelihoods are at stake. So government are using media to challenge what they perceive to be uh, an attack on business. So they're well aware of the power of the media, well aware, and this is indicative of that awareness. So you'll remember I showed you the slide of DWP and how much is lost to um, uh, fraud, uh, benefit claim fraud. Um, I found this table in a, in a document that was published uh, last November by the Tax Justice Network, and this looks at tax abuse, um, and in, more specifically tax evasion, as distinct from tax avoidance, which as we know is legal. This is tax evasion. And the amount, according to that report, lost is almost £70 billion. £70 billion, I mean £1.2 billion is a lot of cash. £70 billion is um, vastly more. And yet we don't have the similar stories in the media saying um, business X is avoiding their tax. Um, these people are putting the country's uh, prosperity at risk. There are no comparable denigration or demonization of the organizations and or businesses who are evading their tax. And the, the, um, not only is it the media that... Uh, represent people who claim benefits as deficient and dangerous, but it's, it's via the media, it is government themselves. Now this woman here, she is the Minister for Disabled People, but you wouldn't know it necessarily from what she says. She says there's no shortage of jobs, this is, on, this is the beginning of last month she says this, 
and this is a headline from The Guardian. Maria Miller blames unemployment on people's unwillingness to apply for work. So the implication is that there's work there, but people are claiming £65 a week JSA, and they're choosing to stay there even though there's work just over there that they could access if they so chose. And she says, if you actually look at the facts and figures, there's 400,000 jobs at any one point in job centres. She was up in the Wirral on Friday talking to one of her local job centres and there isn't a shortage of jobs. It's a lack of appetite for some of the jobs that are available on the part of the claimants. And she goes on, she gives this advice, we need to make sure people have got the right skills. The individuals are deficient, is the point she's making there. So that they don't see a risk in moving into employment. I don't think it's a lack of jobs at the moment, she says again. I think it really is making sure that we've got people knowing where those jobs are. <coughs> Happily for this man in the picture, he knows where the jobs are. They're right in front of him. <laughs> we could and should follow Maria's advice and look at the facts and figures. And according to The Guardian last month, um, UK unemployment is stuck at a 17-year high as the economy, as The Guardian describes it, flatlines. Um, you might say that The Guardian has a particular angle it likes to follow, so let's look at the Office for National Statistics. They say the unemployment rate was 8.4% of the economically active uh, population, 2.67 million unemployed people. The unemployment rate has not been higher since 1995. So this is 2.6 million unemployed people. And if you'll recall, Maria Miller was telling us that there are 400,000 jobs. You don't have to be a mathematical genius to work out <laughs> that, that, there's, that she's a bit confused about the availability of jobs. Um, so that's essentially what the points I wanted to make. Is it the personal deficiency defectiveness of Frank and his ilk, or is it um, the making of chaps? Is it as a consequence of societal or structural factors? Uh, and no doubt some of you will be putting some questions in regard to that. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much, Sue. Um, our final speaker is Mary Evans. Um, she is Centennial Professor at the Gender Institute, LSE. Uh, Mary has an immense publishing record and is ideally placed to contribute to the literary, literary festival and on this topic <coughs> excuse me, in particular. Um, Professor Evans draws on her interest in literature, especially the works of Jane Austen and Simone de Beauvoir, to reflect on contemporary understandings of gender and social class in Britain and how these understandings inform the politics of inequality. Um, she's a prolific author. Um, some of her recent books include um, The Imagination of Evil, Detective Fiction in the Modern World. Uh, previous works include Gender and Social Theory. And one of her earlier works, which contrasts, I think, to some of the issues we're discussing today, uh, is called A Good Life, Life at a Grammar School in the 1950s, which I think is perhaps very different from uh, some of the kind of people and some of the issues that we're focusing on at the moment. Um, her current research is focused on the ways in which social classes are portrayed and discussed uh, in contemporary Britain. So let's welcome uh, Mary Evans. Um, thank you very much, Diane, and thank you very much to Owen uh, and to Sue for their contributions to what I think is a hugely, hugely fascinating topic of our national culture, um, that of class. 
Um, what I wanted to do in the remarks that I have to offer this afternoon are really to consider three areas. First of all, I want to ask the question of what exactly chavs are for. And I don't mean that in the sense that they, what is their, what they do in the social world, but I want to look at the ways in which it's very important in the social world, and Britain, I think, is no exception here, sometimes for there to be a group which is demonized, because through that, what you can do with that demonization is to make other people look better. What I'm, so what I'm suggesting is that there is a social dynamic which does not always not welcome those people in the social world who are different, who seem to live in different ways, who have different cultural aspirations and standards to those of other people in the society. Because that dynamic of good and bad enables and supports, it seems to me, those people who self-identify themselves as the good people in the society to have a basis on which they can legitimate their decisions and their actions. I also think one of the things we need to consider here in thinking about this question of what chavs are for is to consider the question of the extent to which the whole concept of the chav is real or fictional, because it does seem to me, I mean, a lot of people have spoken already, uh, Owen has spoken about the fictional representation of the child, and it does seem to me that in a sense this fictional representation of a group of people, which is very different from any kind of real material that there might be to support this identification of a particular group, is something which is actually very important, that sometimes we need, we we, and often for the wrong reasons, social fictions to support ways of bringing societies together in ways which actually suit not the less powerful, but in point of fact, the more powerful. So what I'm arguing here then is that the demonization of chavs maintains a kind of smokescreen about exploitative relations of class. This seems to me to be the fundamental answer to the question of what are chavs for? And these, of course, these exploitative relations of class are relations of class and labor, labor and capital. These are relations which are long-standing, which are not just part of the first century, uh, the f of the first years of the 21st century, but they've been there for over 200, 300 years. And I also think that constructing chavs, as chavs have been constructed largely through fiction and through a mass media, the, the enlargement, if you like, of a mass media presence of this person and these people identified as chavs, has actually helped to further the political disappearance of the ideal of social equality. And at the same time, I think it's assisted those politics which endorse the success of neoliberalism rather than politics which are organized around issues, for example, about redistribution or environmental activism. So what the CHAV does in political and structural terms, perhaps, is occupy a very important ideological fantasy space of that which makes the achievement 
of those politics which might threaten the interests of the wealthiest and the most privileged possible. So we don't want to do environmental politics because it's disruptive, it's expensive. We don't want to do redistribution. We don't want to think about class inequality. So if we actually don't want to do these things, we need to somehow or other create a sense in which we are all, all of those who are identified as good hang together in order to push back the boundaries of what we can do together but in doing that, of course, we set out a group of people who, in some sense, are seen to threaten that moral cohesion of the rest of the social world. So I do think that this importance of... I think that the question of what chavs uh, are for is, is quite important here. And it seemed to me that what happened by the time that the chav had been constructed and identified is that the chav made possible what I would describe as a somewhat bigamous marriage, a marriage between the electorally significant white-collar workers of southern England and an elite, but an elite already married to the interests of capital. So this person, this whether we want to call this elite the husband or the wife or the partner, whatever um, identity this person has, we have to remember was already married. This is a bigamous marriage a marriage which draws people together in ways which, of course, prolong inequality. The second thing that I want to talk about this evening is the question of the gender of the chav. We've talked about various female people um, in the mythology of, of the chav. But I also want to look at, the, look at this a bit more closely and think about the ways in which class mobilizes gender and gender mobilizes class. I noticed at various times, Owen, that your language sometimes slips from a discussion of boys to people. And I'm not suggesting that boys are not people, but what I am suggesting, that this is a kind of slippage in language which sometimes obscures gender difference and very important forms of gender differentiation. I think one of the things about the recent cuts is the double whammy that this, these, these cuts introduce for women. It's not just, for example, that the actual funding for nursery care disappears. It's also, and so that women cannot easily work, find nursery care for their children. But it's also, of course, that the jobs in those places, which might have been given to women, also disappear. So you get a really important way, I think, in which money taken away from women can very often have not just one effect, but two effects. But I also want to talk about something else in relationship to gender and chavs, and that is how people are so concerned with the potential polluting possibilities of female chavdom. And I want to put before you as an example of this the case of Vogue magazine in, I think, 2007. Alexandra Shulman, the editor, put on the front cover of Vogue the wife of Wayne Rooney, the England footballer. She says herself that she was shocked by the fury, the disgust, and the general sort of sense of outrage that this provoked. A beautiful, attractive young woman, but clearly identified with a part of the culture which is identified with these chav people. 
Vogue is polluted. The very presence, the very place of Vogue, the, the sanctuary of expensive handbags and 3,000-pound pairs of shoes is suddenly reduced to nothing because Mrs. Wayne Rooney is on the cover of that magazine. Now, if you think this, this was just one example, Alexandra Shulman then went on to dig her coffin of class consciousness, even her grave of class consciousness, rather, even deeper. When she wrote up an article, she wrote up an interview which she had with Victoria Beckham. And one of the first sentences in this article is, I was really surprised at what good manners she had. <laughs> She knew how to use a knife and fork, you know. <laughs> and you think this is not just about two people meeting each other from bits of the social world which don't usually interact. It's also about holding lines through gender of class. It's about keeping pollution of an underclass, a chav world, at bay. It's, not, it's maintaining, if you like, the value of the commodity through its exclusive access to certain people in privileged positions. The third and last thing that I want to say um, here uh, this evening is just to say a bit, ever so briefly, about the shifting sands of the middle class and who exactly this new middle class is. Who are these people, as Butch Cassidy asked? Well, when Tony Blair talked about the middle class, I think he was thinking of the highly educated professional middle class, the world of um, elite education, professional employment, and so on and so forth. And that professional class, of course, is deeply intertwined with privilege and exclusion. And that, I think, makes a nonsense of other questions which we ought to be asking about who exactly is this middle class? It's a white-collared it's a white-collar group of salaried workers earning around about the average wage of £24,000 a year. These people are the people who are the 94% of the population who do not send their children to public schools. And in point of fact, their salaries, their annual salaries, would not pay the annual costs of public school education. It's that kind of structural financial inequality that I think needs to be recognised and endlessly um, repeated. So I'm not going to, but what I am going to say is that in that sense, the rest of us, the 94%, we are all working class because that is the source of our income. But of course it's a population which is divided by important differences in the condition of our work, as well as the more toxic narr narrative of choice, which I think is fundamental to neoliberalism. And I think in conclusion then, it's not just that chavs are being demonised, but also that their very choices paradoxically support the agenda of choice which obscures material inequality. Chavs play a crucial part in establishing that smokescreen. So what I want to say um, in conclusion is that the continuation of inequality actually needs chavs, and that takes me back to what are chavs for, in that their demonization permits that legitimacy 
which allows economic discrimination and policies which are directed towards the maintenance of difference and privilege. Thank you. Okay, so um, I now open the floor to discussion. Do we have loads of questions? Okay, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to take a few together and then ask the panel to respond. Um, can we start with um, the uh, person in white, uh, about four rows back? Yes. Uh, just, just can you wait for the microphone, please? And then if people with microphones go near maybe the person in orange next. Um, thank you. Yes, uh, Kerry Dingle from World Bites, the Citizen TV channel. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed your presentation, and <coughs> I recently read and really enjoyed your book, Owen, and particularly its acute observation of demonization of the working class, which I thought was uh, really, really um, well done and shocking at times. But I have two quick questions, which are maybe for Owen, but for the panel more broadly. One, in your book, the only thing that made me kind of sort of, uh, I don't know, grimace, was your use of the world vulnerable and the working class as victims. Because, it, yes, people have been absolutely trashed and screwed. I think we all know that. Um, but I don't think working class people see themselves as victims. And you sort of spend a lot of time on the Wotels, and it seems to be something that I know I've always found revolting and it's because it's how the third world is often referred to. And being vulnerable and victims is that sort of hopeless, hapless, <clears throat> can't do anything to better your own life. And I suppose, secondly, related to that, I was and of course that doesn't really lend itself to solidarity, it lends itself to feeling sorry for people. You know, it's the sort of charitable missionary impulse. Secondly, related, your while we know, you know everything that Thatcherism represented in terms of pulling the rug from under people and um, all the rest of it, you attack something that I would have thought is essential for sort of solidarity, or you call it the sort of reconstruction of class or, or whatever. I would call it sort of social solidarity, which is you talk about aspirations and self-interest in a problematic way, whereas I would have thought they're fund. How can you have a collective interest if you don't have self-interest? Okay. Um, and the person in um, orange. Uh, hello, yeah. Um, I realise that we need to hold power to account, and we all know who, uh, what kind of class background, people who have power. But I was, I was interested in the uh, distinctions within the working classes themselves. And I think one answer to the idea of, you know, what is the purpose of chavs is to divide and conquer. Uh, to, to make distinctions in the, within the working classes themselves. I know from my own background that there are a lot of negative views about those who are from you know, uh, uh, an underclass, whereas we, you know, I would say we all come from a working class background myself, that we're all of the same. However, within portrayals of the working classes, there are the likes of Irving Welsh, Shane Meadows, Paul Abbott, who are... I would say exploiting the working class experience, whether it be showing them in a dysfunctional way or an nihilistic way. So I wondered what you thought about how the working class themselves portray the working class. Okay, take the um, 
person three rows back, yes. And, and then we'll uh, get the, the panel to respond. Um. Um, I thought I'd give you a good chance to shout about things. Um, it was pretty clear the last government's aspiration was to make everybody middle class um, through encouraging access to university education. What do you think of this government's approach to class and its particularly its opinions of the working class? Do they exist? What are they for? And what's next for them? Yes. Um, well, firstly, uh, yes. Yeah, so the woman in white. Right, there you are. So, um, I mean, the main part, the whole point of the book was about power. It was about um, an offensive. I, I would argue a class war, which was fought in the 1980s, but my, the whole point of the book, the key message, if you like, was firstly representation and collective power, because for me, demonization is just a symptom of a deeply unequal society. It's a way of, well, firstly, rationalizing inequality, as partly has been alluded, because you say inequality is deserved. People are at the bottom because they deserve to be there. People at the top are there because they work hard, you know, whilst people at the bottom are work shy and all the rest of it. And for me, the whole point of it wasn't about wasn't supposed to be about victimhood or anything else. It was to do with collective organisation, because for me, the only way of, as I say, the demonisation to say it was a hook, it's just a, a symptom. The point to challenge, and the, the conclusion was about this, I mean, it's called Towards a New Class Politics, was about working class self-organisation and also power, political power in particular. So it wasn't this idea, well, it wasn't supposed to be, of a kind of, you know, those from above having pity on those below. And, you know, almost social reform. It's this traditional Fabian idea that social progress comes from enlightened people at the top, out of the goodness of their heart, improving the condition of everybody else. But that's not the solution. It is about power and representation. And you're right, I mean, I went to Ashington, which is a former mining village, um, which was decimated... Um, after the collapse of the, the after the collapse of the industry and the closure of the pit, and it, I suppose that was where the I think the betrayal probably looked problematic, and it was because I mean one woman I spoke to just collapsed in tears, and said our lives have been broken and, and the rest of it, and I think, I think perhaps the betrayal of that was difficult, and I'm not sure I achieved that in the best possible way in that, and I think that's what you're referring to that um, discussion about Ashington. But as I say, it wasn't the whole point of it. The book was about representation, about power and about voice, about the fact that, for example, in Parliament today, two-thirds of MPs come from a professional middle-class background and less than one in 20 come from any unskilled background whatsoever. The fact in the media of the top 100 journalists, over half are privately educated and just over one in 10 even went to a comp. No wonder then you get journalists talking about places like Jeesby as a foreign country or comparing it to Afghanistan. So unless we challenge that in an organised way from below, because social change only happens from below, then these problems will remain, as I say, which are just symptoms. The other point about self-interest, I mean, the point I was making about self-interest, if you like, was that it completely replaced this idea of an idea of collective action, if you like, um, in terms of, and what I mean by that is not actually, that still remains in many communities, idea of collective identity. But in terms of, you know, at the political level, obviously, the position of, say, the Labour Party, which was founded by the trade unions, provide a political voice for working people, which didn't obviously exist at the turn of the last century. It was this idea that people get on by pulling themselves up by the bootstraps. But at the same time, the important point to make is I wasn't making a point of people should know their place. I mean, one of the 
chapters was called The Rig Society, and it was about precisely how entire middle-class professions have become closed shops for the middle classes through things like unpaid internships, um, which have to be cracked open. The point is that that form of about aspiration, that the only way to basically to escape, and that's what you're encouraged to do, to escape, is by yourself pulling yourself up by the bootstrap and leaving that situation. And that was what I was arguing against. If, of course, though, it fits in with self-interest because people, above all, want the best for their families and it's about the best means of achieving that, and I think that's on a collective level. Just quickly, in terms of distinctions within the working class, the point to always make is, obviously, the working class has never been homogenous. It's, it's, I mean, you know, if we go way back, you had your skilled workers, your unskilled workers, the, the, the you know, people who were very well paid, who were known as the labour aristocracy, and the long-term unemployed. You had people in the south, you had people in Glasgow. Huge differences. People who lived in early, well, in slums, early forms of social housing, and people who always owned their own homes. So it's important to make that, and these divisions within the working class were hugely wide, and partly, because, for example, right to buy is a classic example of that. Because what happened, I mean, Nye Bevan, when he first unleashed the council house revolution in 1947, said he wanted to recreate the loveliest aspects of the English and the Welsh village, where the doctor and the butcher lived side by side. And shockingly, almost, in 1979, that of the top 10% of the population, a fifth lived in social housing. So it did actually support mixed communities, but because of right to buy, what that did is, and the failure to replace the stock that was sold off, it became increasingly ghettoised, and that actually hugely, of course, widened divisions within working-class Britain, um, unsurprisingly. And those resentment, I mean, the point about so-called scroungers, it's a very important point to make. Often those who get most angry about the idea of people living off the state and so on, scroungers, are people in low-paid jobs scraping by who... Uh, don't necessarily even enjoy the work they're doing and the idea of someone taking the mick or taking the piss as the expression often is riles them more than anybody else um, and I, where I grew up in Stockport that was exactly many of my friends would exactly make those points of course the counter arguments important counter arguments to make the fact is there were 22 job seekers chasing every single job in this country you compare tax avoidance for, I mean, not just evasion tax avoidance is 25 billion compared to £1.2 billion lost through benefit fraud, £16 billion worth of benefits aren't claimed. You can shout that at people till you're blue in the face, but actually it will still, those resentments the, between particularly working poor and the unemployed are often very big. And the benefit cap, which this government introduced, tried to tap into that resentment. It was this idea, I mean, the fact we have a lot, you know, people on receiving benefits of more than 26,000 is everything to do with housing benefit, for example, which is lining the pockets of rich landlords, and that bill is so big because we stopped building social housing and we abolished the rent cap. But it's easy to say, look, these people are getting more than 26 grand and you're only on 15 grand a year. How is this right? And that exploited those divisions within working class Britain. I think that's an important point to make. Um, I just finally as well, what I wanted to look at as well in terms of what work, work, the change of working class Britain is it's important to note the shift from the industrial working class to the service sector working class. If I go back home, the people I grew up with are now working often in supermarkets and call centres where people once worked in docks, mines and factories, you've got a shift to the supermarket and the call centre. A million call centre workers now, which is as many as there were miners at the peak of the mining industry. Retail is the second biggest employer in the country. That is the new and growing working class, and that's what's often been airbrushed out of existence. Um, there was the question of the government. Oh, sorry, yeah, sorry, Luke. He's a friend of mine as well, and I've completely ignored his question. Sorry, Luke. <laughs> Hello. Um, 
Yeah, I, I think, as you say, I mean, Gordon Brown fought the last election on the idea. He said we want to build a new and uh, bigger work, middle class than ever before. And that was, of course, that was the whole discourse of New Labour, people on an individual level becoming middle class. And that was what aspiration should be about, middle classness. But I think what I'd say about this government, I mean, again, it's this idea, well, this government, most people would argue, I mean, you know, Thatcher herself said class is a communist concept. It puts people into bundles and sets them against each other. The right don't normally want to talk about class because it raises issues of exploitation, of divisions of wealth and power, people working uh, for other people, um, the idea of an organised group of people, in theory, challenging the power of those at the top. So the, the, the right generally, the modern right, airbrush out the idea of class. But of course what this government is doing is, for example, it's, it's slashed corporation tax on big business while increasing VAT, a tax which disproportionately hits low and middle income earners. It's um, using the crisis, and it's very skillful to use the crisis of the market and turn it into crisis of public spending. And what it's doing, for example, is it's using this crisis to double the amount of time people can appeal to an industrial tribunal when they're sacked. It's, you know, it's uh, what we're seeing in terms of cuts disproportionately affecting working class communities. Um, the, the, the changes to housing benefit, which will leave possibly tens of thousands of people losing their homes. That's, if you could, in my view, that's class warfare. But the point is, when you stand up for the bottom 70%, they call you a class warrior. You stand up for the top 1%, they call you a moderate. And that, in my view, sums up this government. They will champion the people at the top, and they're talking, for example, of scrapping the 50p tax, which only affects the top 1% of the population. They've slashed, as I say, corporation tax while shifting increasing the tax burden, as Thatcher did, to everybody else. That is class warfare, and I think we should call it as such. Okay, thank you. I'm going to ask for some more questions before we ask the other panelists to respond. So we have the person in, in black in the middle, the person in grey, and the person in the second row here, and the person in black uh, be in front of the other person in black, perhaps. <laughs> perhaps you, you could go next, actually, if, if you go to the person in front after the person behind. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, I really welcome the fact that uh, Owen has helped to uh, open up this debate about disdain about the working class, which I think is a very, very important topic. Uh, and certainly some of the people who have a go at really deserve it, like James Denningpole and so on. But the thing that worries me about it is it is quite selective in the terms of the people who it attacks. And one, I think, very big omission in terms of anti-working class thinking is anti-consumerism, which to me is very directly related to the chav thing. So even if you think about the classic stereotype of the chav, prob probably a white working class guy wearing Burberry, a Burberry brand, to me the idea behind that prejudice is, oh my god, isn't it terrible that a working class person would want to have a kind of nice uh, designer jacket or whatever it is? That's kind of one example of anti-consumerism. And the example, I didn't know about it, but the one Professor Evans raised about Vogue, Colleen Rooney being on the cover of Vogue. Uh, I'm not a regular reader of Vogue, as people here might guess by looking at me. Uh, but I think journalistically you can see that was very clever because it took a working class woman, or at least a woman who came from a working class background, put her on the as a kind of icon in front of a, a star magazine. And you could see how the kind of intellectual middle class would rail against that. You know, oh my God, how could we have Colleen Rooney on the cover of Vogue? And there's all sorts of ways in which consumerism, by ordinary people, is viewed with complete disdain. Even something which doesn't appear to be about class like junk food, so-called junk food. Seems to me a lot of that is anti-working class, because really the idea behind it is it's, it's junk people who eat junk food. 
You know, how can ordinary people aspire to have, uh, you know, to have nice clothes and eat nice food? You know, it's just completely ridiculous. They should just know their place. So, to me, anti-consumerism is central to uh, anti-working class thinking. And, to conclude, in terms of austerity, very, very important because, to me, it will help to make austerity acceptable. acceptable. Because if you believe that consuming too much is a problem, consuming too much, in inverted commas, and consumption has to be reined in, then how can you argue against austerity? Because austerity makes perfect sense if you accept that premise in the first place. Okay, thank you. Can, can people try and keep their questions short to get the most in? Uh, is the person immediately in front of you next, I think? Yeah. And then we'll go to the middle, then over there, then over here. Yeah. Hello. Um, thank you. Um, could you... I don't know if this... Uh, sorry, Owen, I haven't read your book yet. My twin sister's not read my book, I mean. <laughs> but I, I have a question. Um, you may have picked up from my accent that... Um, I'm from Essex, originally from the East End. Um, I wonder what your take is on the whole Essex thing and its attack on the white working classes and the white flight of the 1970s, and also for the, for the others to comment on that. Okay, the um, person in the, in the middle now. Then we're coming over there and then down here. Uh, Brian Keegan from Peter Fabian. So, uh, hello. So, you came to speak to us. Yeah, one of the things that I very fundamentally disagree with Blair and Brown about was this whole aspirational agenda because it automatically, and I think you've covered this, infers that, uh, that anybody who doesn't aspire, doesn't move up, is inferior in some way. Uh, I'm actually going to spend 35 years in sewage as an engineer, and the, the first sewage treatment works I designed up in Peterborough, small sewage treatment works, had an open day, and these guys with rough, hairy hands and cuts on them were going around saying, showing their children and their families, their sewage treatment works, and I regarded it as mine. But it brought home to me and reinforced that I couldn't have achieved my outputs without the help of everybody within that team, including the labourers. Now, um, I wouldn't recommend particularly Catholicism in terms of a dogma, but I don't know whether you're aware of Catholic social teaching, because it does seem to me that it addresses these various issues, because it actually puts humanity at the heart of the project, and it suggests that work is essential for humans to express they're, they're themselves as humans, they're entitled to work, they're entitled to a reasonable wage for that work, and, and by, by, in order for them to contribute effectively to their work, they have to have their talents developed so they can identify them and put them to the, the use of the common good. And it does seem to be the, the only critique, A, of you know, this liberalism at the moment, but B, a sort of blueprint for how you might get out of it, and value everybody in society. If you value everybody in society, doesn't that automatically start to address some of the issues of inequality? Uh, yeah, uh, this relates to uh, Professor Evans's idea about class as a kind of necessary dichotomy. Um, I mean, structural inequalities aren't new. Uh, conceptions of blame and choice and a deserving and an undeserving poor, of course, go back at least as far as uh, you know the Victorian era in Britain. Um, in, the vi in Victorian Britain, there's a real sense of fear of middle-class people falling into the working class. So I suppose my question is, what's new? And why is this construction um, only a kind of post-1980s uh, phenomenon onwards? It can't simply be Thatcherism. OK, so, yeah. OK, hello. Um, just another quick question directed at Owen, if I may. I think you've covered this already a bit. Um, but there are obviously a huge amount of very poor working people who are trying to improve their lives. Is there anything inherently wrong, in your view, with aspiring to be middle class and having their cafetiere and their bath salts and whatever else? Or is that part of the problem, in your view? Okay. Um, 
Can I just have an indication of who else wants to ask questions at some point? There's a whole group of people over there. Um, I, and one right over in the corner there. Um, uh, so um, can people respond quite briefly to this set? And then we'll have one more round, but we do have to finish on time. So people can respond quite quickly yeah. to those questions. Um, I would say, obviously, there's nothing inherently wrong with wanting to change your circumstances into better circumstances, but there, there is something wrong with doing that at the expense of other people. And um, to address an earlier point that I can't remember who made about um, self-interest, I think it was your point, Kerry, about self-interest. Again, there's nothing wrong with self-interest, as you rightly said. How can you progress in a, uh, at the level of community if you have insufficient self-interest to work with others? It's at the expense of others when that becomes problematic, is what I would say on, on that point. Um, the, why is it different now? I'd say it's different now because there are so many more channels via which the denigration of working class people are foisted upon us. You can have um, insult, you can insult Chavs via Twitter, via Facebook, via YouTube. You're right, in the 70s it was just as bad but we just had print media in the main and four TV channels. The, 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 the power of the media is, I think, what makes the difference now. Um, Brian, I couldn't agree more. Yes, if we did value uh, people as individuals and didn't dehumanize people by denigrating them as, uh, or dismissing them as chavs and feckless and so on, if there was a recognition of the humanity of each and every one of us, then my view is that um, arguably uh, people would almost be obliged to behave better towards others. I think that's what I'd say on those. Yeah. Mary? Um, very quickly as well. Um, three things I wanted to say. The question about consumerism, I think that link between consumerism and austerity is actually already out there in the media. There was an interview recently in which Edwina Curry um, pilloried a young woman in terms of, what have you got? What have you got? What do you possess? Have you got this? Have you got that? Because if you possess these things, you know, it's, you know you're, not, you're not poor. And it was a quite extraordinary interview. And the, you know, the young woman was reduced to tears. It was, it was covered quite broadly. But I think that thinking is actually there. So that's one thing. Um, the second thing that I wanted to say is actually slightly to disagree with Owen. I don't think social change actually always comes from below. I think we can see two narratives which have emerged from um, the privileged in the last 20 years. I think Thatcherism naturalized the market economy. It made it the only show in town. And I think what the present government is doing is neutralizing the importance of class in a person's um, experience of life. And I think naturalization and neutralization are two narratives which actually the privileged have got a very good hold on. Um, yeah. Just quickly, well, actually, Edwina Curry, Radio 5 often forced me to spend hours debating, including my Friday nights, lowest point imaginable. But there was a point I actually had to debate her because she said, if you've got a mobile phone, you're not really poor. And I had to point out most people in Africa have a mobile phone. In fact, more people have access to a mobile phone in Africa than have access to clean drinking water. Uh, it just showed how ridiculous her point was. But the point about consumerism is really really important. Uh, Burberry was seen as a high-class uh, brand for rich people. The wrong people started wearing it and it became seen as a tacky brand. We've seen the same recently with the Blackberry. Uh, it was seen as a high-end corporate device and now it's seen as something which uh, 
hoodies used to coordinate looting the local supermarket. So it's this idea of the wrong people having access to things. And the point I made about holidays was the same. Package holidays, the wrong people are going abroad. This is a disaster. So I do think that's an absolute key point. But the point about the term chav, for example, is, is because it's an othering, very few people call themselves a chav. I've met people say as a joke, I'm a bit of a chav me, but it's not serious. It's an imposed term on someone else. It's not a subculture like goths or going back mo uh, mods and rockers. People impose it, and as such, it can be as broad or as narrow in definition as people want. So it can be people who spend money in a tacky way. It can mean scroungers. It can mean people who are, you know, teenage mothers. It can mean a whole range of different things. It depends on the context it's been used and who's using it. Uh, the Essex thing, I suppose, predates it in lots of ways, and actually the term chav often, um, I mean, it emerges probably from the Romany word for child, chavi, uh, but it was often more used in Essex and Kent to begin with and then became more of a national thing. But I think that snottiness, I mean, we've seen the only way is Essex recently. It's bizarre because actually those people are actually very affluent. In fact, they own businesses, but they're portrayed again as this kind of tacky, feckless, um, or, you know, ta people, the wrong people with money, again, which taps into that idea of consumerism. And the Essex thing, I think, taps into that idea. Um, just in terms of uh, aspiration, I think the key point is the, the, what parents always want, regardless of background, is the best for their kids. And of course, um, I, mean, the, I mean, the whole point about whether you call it middle class or not, I think that's a side issue. I mean, if you take this government, for example, it scrapped the educational maintenance allowance, which supported poor kids, poorer kids, people from poorer backgrounds, going into education, it's trebled tuition fees. These are all blocks and aspiration, in my view. Um, so I'd argue, it, yes, of course, these are kind of collective ways education is a collective means of people progressing which are being shut down and of course I want everyone to want the best possible and, um, and I talked again these closed shops but the point I'd always make is when people talk about social mobility it's this idea the only way is you as an individual escaping and what does that mean about everybody else that's not a solution for the, you know, the same number of people still be working in supermarkets or in call centres so those issues have to be addressed and just finally, the point about value and valuing everyone for what they did. The New Economics Foundation did a report called A Bit Rich, which looked at what people are paid and their social worth. And it showed that for every, in their model, for every pound the hospital cleaner was paid, £10 of social value was created. Because if you didn't have hospital cleaners, they're only paid minimum wage, then the whole NHS would basically collapse. I mean, people would die in their thousands because of preventable diseases, but it would ravage people because of, you know, these, these awful illnesses. Uh, but they found that for every pound an investment banker was paid, seven pounds was taken out of the economy. And yet, of course, a high-end investment banker will make millions of pounds. So the point is, actually, if we're going to have people paid for what they're, in terms of what they contribute to society, then that would actually mean fighting and organising to have a living wage for people who, as a society, we all depend on for society to keep ticking. Right. We've just got time, I think, for your question over there. I think I'm very sorry for other people, but well, maybe we'll take just one from these people uh, up here. So if you can be brief. Well, I will be brief. Um, I, I, I can't hear very well. Can you just put the mic Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I, in part, I think I just want to say, okay, so now what do we do? Um, but I think the slightly extended version of that question has to do with the relationship that I heard implicit across all three of your um, conversations around materiality, um, access to material goods, uh, this sort of persistent sense of aspiration, however it um, looks, 
and uh, structures of education in particular. And I'm thinking about the news that um, news story recently around the, the increased defunding of vocational education and, and the sort of demonizing of educational uh, pathways that become associated with this increased demonization of working class labels. Okay, and just one quick question from, yes, the person there who got their hand up first. Just a very quick one. I was going to ask about the origin of the word chav, but also to link that with portrayals that you see with, within um, series like Big Fat Gypsy Wedding and the othering nature of that. Okay. All right, we have 15 seconds each to uh, <laughs> respond. I'd Anything to say, Sue? Uh, in terms of now what, if one accepts that um, the difference in income inequality is uh, the, the strong correlation between that and these negative health and social outcomes, if one accepts the, the logic that might be implicit in that correlation, then perhaps work should be done to reduce the income inequality in the UK, for example. And there are two ways, generally two ways one could do that. I've, I've Firstly, redistribution of wealth, or alternatively, um, actively working to reduce the top pay and increase the bottom pay. So, for example, I shan't be long. In Islington, they've reduced the pay of the CEO by about fifty thousand pounds, and they've also taken back in-house cleaning contracts so that they can ensure that the cleaners get um, the London living wage, which is slightly more than the national minimum wage. So, if wealth distribution via the tax system is out of fashion, which it clearly is, rightly or wrongly, then let's look at other mechanisms. Let's look at reducing the disparity. Um, tax, 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 and, <laughs> and, <more tax> and <laughs> recognise not just the reward, the material rewards of work, but the importance of the conditions of work. Mm. Uh, just quickly, chav origin. Um, very many words for child, Charvi, almost certainly, but people invent acronyms like council housed and vulgar, council housed and violent, and so on. Um, secondly, oh, demonising a vocational education, you talked about. Well, I mean, say my housemate, for example, who failed all his GCSEs, worked in a factory for seven years, and then he did an access course, which is then how he went to university. Those courses are being increasingly shut down, which links into it. But also, one of the most disgraceful things I saw with a scrapping of the educational maintenance allowance was the media saying, well, actually, they were just spending it on cigarettes and alcohol. Well, firstly, who gives a toss, actually? At least they were in education. It doesn't really matter what they were spending it on. It's completely besides the point. But, but you saw that as a means of saying, look at these, the wrong, you know, these are f problematic youths, hoodies. You give them some money and look how they spend it. And that was used to help justify an attack by this government on people uh, from those communities. And frankly, a government of millionaires slamming the door in the face of uh, young working class kids in this country. Okay, thank you. Um, well, you, you've already thanked the speakers. Can I just say that those of you who'd like to go to something else this evening, uh, there are some tickets for a or a, an event concerned with fighting for free speech. So um, that's something you can go with. And per perhaps we should just, um, well, maybe we could just thank our, our speakers once more, and especially Owen for bringing these issues again to our attention and to remind you that um, you may be able to speak to him briefly or buy his book uh, outside. Okay, thank you.